You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Ukrainian resistance may have stalled the Russian advance at key points, cyber operations against Ukraine and Russia, a swift kick, return of the privateers now in the guise of patriotic hacktivists. Not all hacking is war-related. Josh Ray from Accenture on the Killack backdoor malware and its continued evolution. Rick Howard revisits the cyber sand table. And criminals exploit Ukraine's suffering in social engineering campaigns. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Monday, February 28th, 2022. Russian forces have failed to reach their initial objectives, stalling in the north and east while advancing more rapidly from Crimea in the south. Neither Kyiv nor Kharkiv, the two large cities under greatest pressure, have yet fallen. Kyiv Mayor Klitschko described the city as suffering and hard-pressed, but as holding on, and significantly neither surrounded nor occupied. Military Times reports a quieter night in the capital. The invading forces are also reported to have failed to take Kharkiv, Ukraine's second-largest city, with a population of nearly a million and a half. The city is only 40 kilometers from the Russian border and was expected to fall quickly. It's also a largely Russophone city and one that might have been expected to offer a tepid resistance, if not an outright welcome to Russian forces. Instead, resistance has been strong and violent. Not at all the march of flowers some had expected. Failure to take Kharkiv represents an early and surprising failure for the invading forces of Russia's western military district. RiskIQ confirms that it's seeing ghostwriter activity against Ukrainian troops. Ghostwriter has been associated with the Belarusian government and with the group being tracked by Recorded Future and others as UNC-1151. Recorded Future thinks it's likely that Russian elements, particularly the GRU, have used Belarusian infrastructure and cooperated with Belarusian intelligence services to run operations against Ukraine. The BBC reports that other hackers have rallied to the Russian colors and volunteered to hit Ukrainian online assets. The ones talking to the BBC claim to be cutting quite a swath, 
but it's unclear how effective they may actually have been. Over the weekend, the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency released, with its FBI partners, an updated advisory on the wiper malware used against Ukraine last week. The advisory is principally forward-looking, intended to suggest defensive measures that U.S. and allied organizations might take to protect themselves should the attacks expand beyond Ukraine, but it also contains significant information about last week's attacks. Most of the attention in the hybrid war has gone to Russian attacks against Ukraine, but there have been operations running the other way, too. Hacker News reports that Russia's National Computer Incident Response and Coordination Center has warned its domestic clientele that cyber attacks against Russian critical infrastructure are to be expected. The hacktivist group Anonymous seems to be siding with Ukraine, although, as always, it's difficult to know who speaks for an anarcho-syndicalist collective, according to ZDNet. As always, statements by hacktivists should be received with cautious skepticism. Anonymous, however, has claimed responsibility for an attack against Russian media outlet RT, and RT was indeed knocked offline by a cyber attack, the Daily Beast reports. Ukraine's government hasn't been reluctant to call for hacktivist volunteers. Bleeping Computer reports that Kyiv is calling for an IT army to take on Russian targets and that it's also released a target list. Russian government agencies, government IP addresses, government storage devices and mail servers, three banks, large corporations supporting critical infrastructure, and even the popular Russian search engine and email portal Yandex. Mikhailo Fedorov, vice prime minister of Ukraine and minister of digital transformation of Ukraine, tweeted out the call, quote, We are creating an IT army. We need digital talents. All operational tasks will be given here. There will be tasks for everyone. We continue to fight on the cyber front. The first task is on the channel for cyber specialists, end quote. Caveat emptor for those considering freelancing, however much one might wish Ukraine well, Cyber operations can be difficult to control and are inherently escalatory, Dragos's Robert M. Lee reminds us. Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov last week offered to negotiate with Ukraine, but the New York Times reported only after Ukraine ceased all resistance to Russia's special military operation. That hasn't happened, and Ukrainian resistance has, if anything, stiffened. Apparently, unconditional surrender is no longer the price of negotiation, as Moscow has agreed to meet today with Ukrainian representatives to seek a resolution to Russia's war of choice. Representatives of the two sides have now agreed to meet at a checkpoint close to the Belarusian border, according to Politico and many other sources. President Zelensky has not expressed high hopes for the meeting. The Guardian quotes him as saying, I do not really believe in the outcome of this meeting, but let them try so that later not a single citizen of Ukraine has any doubt that I, as president, tried to stop the war. End quote. Bloomberg describes the Russian delegates to today's talks as a relatively low-level contingent composed of deputy defense and foreign ministers, but the fact that Russian officials seem willing to negotiate at all without insisting on their earlier preconditions suggests an erosion of confidence in the military situation. A number of Russian banks will be expelled from SWIFT, the Society for Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunication, 
European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen announced late Saturday another incremental increase in sanctions to be levied against Russia in response to its invasion of Ukraine. She began with a direct and harshly honest characterization of Russian aggression. Of the additional sanctions she outlined, the most significant involved blocking a number of Russian banks, those most closely aligned with Russia's war economy, from the SWIFT international funds transfer system. The new sanctions are in keeping with the graduated incrementalism that's marked the Western response to the Russian invasion, but curtailing access to SWIFT is regarded by most observers as a serious blow to the Russian economy. The measures are targeted. They don't affect all banks, but rather a set of financial institutions that are closely associated with Russia's ability to make war. General export controls are expected to have a strongly negative effect on the Russian tech sector. On an individual level, the AP reports, Russia is seeing a run on banks and ATMs as people try to get what foreign currency they can. Conti, the familiar ransomware gang, says it will strike those who oppose Russia. According to Reuters, Conti blogged, quote, If anybody will decide to organize a cyber attack or any war activities against Russia, we are going to use all our possible resources to strike back at the critical infrastructure of an enemy. End quote. So, any serious suppression of cyber criminal gangs by Russian security authorities has proven to be, as was foreseeable, largely an illusion, at best temporary and tactical. On the other side, computing reports that a Ukrainian hacker, possibly a member of Conti, has doxed the gang, releasing details of its internal chatter and some of the gang's sensitive data. Conti's blog was unavailable this morning. There may be a reflexive tendency to blame any cyber incident on Russia, given the current war in Ukraine, but it's worth remembering that there are other criminal organizations out there who have little or nothing to do with that conflict. California-based chipmaker NVIDIA, for example, was hit last week by a cyber attack. The Telegraph reports. The paper quoted a company insider as saying that internal systems were completely compromised, and the Telegraph reported a priori speculation that the attack was related to the ongoing hybrid war in Ukraine. Bloomberg subsequently reported that the attack was unrelated to Russia's war against Ukraine and that the disruption to the company's systems was less serious than it first appeared. NVIDIA told Bloomberg, quote, Our business and commercial activities continue uninterrupted. We are still working to evaluate the nature and scope of the event and don't have any additional information to share at this time. End quote. WCCF Tech said over the weekend that the incident was a ransomware attack by the South American group Lapsus. And, according to Reuters, Toyota has also been affected by a cyber attack on a supplier that's caused Toyota to suspend Japanese production. The nature of the attack on the supplier, Koyima Industries, is unknown. Toyota characterized the incident as a supplier system failure. Authorities are investigating and haven't ruled out a Russian connection. And finally, security firm Avast warns that criminals have begun, in their sorry but entirely foreseeable custom, to exploit people's sympathies for those suffering in Ukraine. The company writes in its blog, quote, As cyber criminals seek to take advantage of the chaos, we have tracked in the last 48 hours a number of scammers who are tricking people out of money by pretending they are Ukrainians in desperate need of financial help. In the past, we have seen similar scams for people stuck while traveling or looking for love. 
Unfortunately, these attackers do not operate ethically and will use any opportunity to get money out of people willing to help others in need. What's suspicious is the immediate mention of Bitcoin, as well as the usernames that consist only of letters and numbers. End quote. If you are moved to help, Avast advises doing so through well-known, credible, trusted organizations and doing so through those organizations' official websites, not through links shared on social media. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use. With zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. And it is always my pleasure to welcome back to the show the CyberWire's Chief Security Officer and Chief Analyst, Rick Howard. Rick, welcome back. Hey, Dave. So for this week's CSO Perspective episode, you are dusting off your cyber sand table to talk <laughs> about an infamous breach from the past. But uh, let's first things first here, remind our listeners what exactly is the cyber sand table and why is it useful? That's a very good question, Dave. So I got the original idea of a cyber sand table from my old military days when after my unit completed an on-the-ground field exercise, the leaders would all gather around a map board afterward for a hot wash and replay the exercise to see if we could learn anything. If we were really fancy, we would use an honest-to-goodness, and I swear I'm not making this up, physical contour map complete with sand to represent the terrain, thus the phrase sand table, and a bunch of plastic <laughs> army soldiers to represent the units on the ground. Or, you know. Boy, boys and their toys. Yeah, you right? know. <laughs> army guys, you know. <laughs> right, right. Army guys and 
army guys playing with army men. Yeah, and I know that there's people in the audience that don't really like to use the military metaphor in conjunction yeah. with cybersecurity. So this is no different from when Tom Brady, the recently retired and perhaps most successful NFL quarterback of all time, studied hours of game film each week to prepare for his next contest. And what I'm advocating for here is that network defenders should take the time to review the game film, if you will, of publicly known breaches to see if we can learn anything to improve our own security posture. All right. I see. So uh, I don't know a whole lot about uh, Mr. Brady, but I do know <laughs> about his reputation for spending a lot of time with game film. Like he would, that was something he really dug into, uh, you know, looking at mistakes from, from previous opponents and, I, you know, sort of being introspective, trying not to repeat those mistakes in future contests. Exactly. Exactly. That's what we're trying to do here. So what game film are you going to review for this particular <laughs> sand table exercise? So this is one of my favorite all-time public breaches because we have a lot of information today about what happened behind the scenes. The breach is the Chinese government's compromise in 2013 of the U.S. government's Office of Personnel Management, or OPM. It's a big, famous case. Mm. You've probably yeah, heard yeah. of it. One of the biggies, yeah. <laughs> I think what people forget, though, is that the breach resulted in one of the largest hauls in a publicly known cyber espionage operation in terms of the sheer tonnage of personal data stolen, like some 20 million background check records, each containing 10 years' worth of data, and the most impactful in terms of how long the information stolen will be useful to the Chinese government, since it will take at least 50 years before the people that belong to those 20 million records will age out of the government workforce. And I don't know about you, Dave, but I'm still pretty mad that this happened. I'm extremely mad. Like, yeah. you know, many in our audience uh, got the letter from OPM telling, I got the letter saying, hey, my records were stolen. And when you read the accounts of what happened, it reads like a Marx Brothers farce, something like, you know, Night of the Opera or something. I mean, it's that nuts. OPM had no security team to speak of, no security tools deployed, and a leadership team who year after year ignored their own internal inspector general about how serious the issue was. And they went up against a world-class cyber operator named Deep Panda. OPM, they didn't have a chance. Yeah. You know, my recollection, uh, never having had a security clearance myself, and honestly, never wanting one. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm very happy that I don't have one now. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't need that kind of anxiety. But, um, you know, I have been on the side of uh, having neighbors who have them. And so having those phone calls, those interviews, you know, neighbors saying, hey, is it okay if the, the people who do the security clearances give you a call? And just because of that, it made me wonder to what degree was my information in anything from OPM because just from being on the sidelines. You yeah, know? and so, you were definitely scooped up, right? So the Chinese know about you, Mr. Bittner, okay? And so they're coming for your food or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, do check it out. It is CSO Perspectives. That is part of CyberWire Pro. You can find out more about that on our website, thecyberwire.com. Rick Howard, thanks for joining us. Thank you, sir. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2, 
or ISO 27001, and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Josh Ray. He is a managing director and global cyber defense lead at Accenture Security. Josh, it's always great to have you back on the show. Uh, I know you and your team have had your eye on a uh, particular bit of backdoor malware called Killack, and you're seeing some evolution there. Can you uh, bring us up to date on what you all are tracking? Absolutely, Dave, and, and thanks again for having me back. Um, yeah, this is really geared towards the cybercrime kind of research community uh, for those listeners out there. And it's about the evolution or continued evolution of really the Killack malware. I think version .028 has, has come out here. And, you know, the Killack PowerShell malware that uh, one of our senior cybercrime threat analysts, uh, Kurt Wilson, was actually telling me about. Many in the community uh, know that it's a PowerShell malware that's been leveraged as part of ransomware operations by by threat groups like Fin7. Uh, and Kurt was telling me that that he's seen Killack updated about nine times from October 2020 to now. So this is a really good indication that the threat is you know actively evolving to uh, continue to avoid detection. Can you give us a, a little bit of the backstory here? Exactly what this does, how it goes about its business. Yeah, without getting too far into the weeds, Killack provides really a, a, like a lightweight uh, backdoor and system profiling function for, for threat actors. So many of whom, as I mentioned before, use it for ransomware activity. Uh, this is a post-compromised uh, malware, so it, you know, it's a stage two malware. And you know the, the stage one is typically a, a spear phishing type of attack from what we've seen. Killack is memory resident malware, right? So it's fileless. And despite that not necessarily being new, it can make it difficult to detect and, and find um, you know, when you're doing forensics. Now, the newest version adds some capability to use the victim organization as, as proxies for, say, outbound traffic. Uh, and it's also important to note, especially from a detection standpoint, that's been used in conjunction with, with other malware families like um, Goodwin, to the JavaScript backdoor, uh, Carbonac, Takeout, Dice Loader, JSS Loader. So, you know, many of that are, are working in the malware analysis and cybercrime community will be familiar with these names. Um, and I highlight this not only for detection purposes, but also because using a variety of these tools together really helps the actors kind of fly under the radar, but it also gives them a really interesting way to evaluate uh, the efficacy of really all their wares together. Well, let's talk uh, mitigation here. I mean, what are your recommendations for folks to best protect themselves? Yeah, and the good news is, I mean, this is this is something that you know net defenders can really kind of sink their teeth into, and hopefully get you know a little bit left of boom and take a more proactive approach, right? So, hmm. one of the things that we talk to our clients about in, in trying to mitigate this activity is always deploying the the newest version of PowerShell with lo- uh, logging enabled. That this could really help you know provide an early alert that uh, your environment has been compromised. And it's important to be aware that threats like Killack can be mitigated earlier in, in the kill chain. Another thing you can do is ensure that your EDR is properly tuned to protect this PowerShell activity. I mean, think about normal everyday users are, are not going to be using PowerShell. One of the things that we always recommend, uh, especially if you can do it well, 
is to implement really strong egress filtering. Uh, this is a great way to disrupt uh, that command and control traffic. So when you think about the fact that this is a stage two type of malware, you really want to make sure that you're implementing strong egress filtering. Network segmentation, obviously, to to help thwart you know that lateral movement, uh, that's very important. You know, having the advanced uh, our ability to conduct advanced forensics, especially in memory, having a third-party retainer uh, is also really important. Uh, these are all things that we feel, especially against this type of threat, uh, that you're going to need to to really drive that uh, resilient security posture. All right. Well, good information for sure. Josh Ray, thanks for joining us. the cyberwire for links to all of today's stories check out our daily briefing at the cyberwire.com the cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in maryland out of the startup studios of data tribe where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies our amazing cyberwire team is elliot peltzman trey hester brandon karp eliana white peru prakash justin sabi tim nodar joe kerrigan Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.